Guys must have something going on back there. They fixed it. (laughs) The main body of this letter, beginning in verse 18, and it runs the rest of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2 and chapter 3 all the way to verse 20. So that's one section of Romans. If you're studying the book, you would take this as one unit of thought. And remember how we're kind of approaching it. These verses and chapters here in this beginning are like a courtroom scene in which God is the judge and jury and executioner and you and I are the defendants here and we're being charged with sin and the penalty is death and condemnation and separation from God under his wrath. The prosecuting attorney is Paul, and he's leveling his case. He's just bringing all of the evidence against all of humanity. Primarily the nations in chapter 1, or as the Bible refers to them, Gentiles. Primarily, though, I think he does somewhat have Jews in mind here. And then in chapter 2, he will turn his attention to the Jews specifically, bringing them in under sin, until in chapter 3, we have all, both Jews and Greeks, uh, been charged with sin. We're under sin. These are chapters that, if I just bring it into the context of our calendar, uh, display and demonstrate and lay out the need for the Passion Week. It's laying out the need human beings have for... Um, Good Friday and for the cross. And so as he lays out this charge of sin against everybody, you'll be introduced to the cross then in verse 21 of chapter 3. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That's Good Friday. That's where we're headed. But beginning in chapter 1 and verse 18 and running through to chapter 3, verse 20, it's all the bad news that we've been talking about charging us with sin. So the next time we'll really get into the good news won't be until chapter 3, verse 21. But don't worry, I will con- every week remind us of the good news. Because remember, this was a letter that was read to a church and Paul didn't have in his mind them spending you know, several months just talking about their sin and not mentioning the cross, right? And so we'll need to be weaving that into our messages. Let's begin in verse 18. Let's read, uh, that's chapter 1, verse 18, and we'll read um, through verse 25. We'll pray, and then we'll dive in. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, or give thanks to him, 
But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's ask God's blessing on this passage. Father, we profess and proclaim and believe that these are your words. We pray that you would speak to us now as your people. Let us see your word come alive. Let us see that it is, as you say, a living word. Father, help us to be humble before what you say about us. And I pray that as we study about sin and unrighteousness, it would cause the sinlessness and righteousness and cross of Christ to be marvelous to us. That we would conclude this message with thanking you for your son. We ask this in his name. Amen. All right, let's begin by looking at verse 18. It begins this section where Paul said, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God. Now, we've talked somewhat about that in the last few weeks. And remember, we connected it to verses 16 and 17, where Paul expressed the fact that he was eager to preach the gospel, that he's not ashamed of it, because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And in addition to that, the gospel, he says, in it is revealed the righteousness of God, the righteousness we need and that we can receive through faith in Christ. That righteousness is revealed in the gospel. And that's all good news, of course, because of what he begins with now in verse 18. Because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven now against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God is being revealed against unrighteousness of which we are all in that category by nature. And therefore, the gospel is such good news Because in it, the righteousness of Christ himself that can be credited to our account if we trust in him is proclaimed in that gospel. It's the wrath of God that makes the gospel such wonderful news for ungodly people like us and unrighteous sinners like us. That's what the good news, what makes it such good news But I think the way he words this is interesting and important. Notice what he says. He says, the wrath of God is revealed. He doesn't say the wrath of God will be revealed. If you read the rest of your Bible, you may expect him to say that. To put this idea or concept of the wrath of God being revealed some point in the future. We talk about that, don't we? The wrath of God that's coming upon the world for its unrighteousness and ungodliness of men, but that's not apparently what he's referring to here. 
Now, it is true that there is, a, there is a wrath of God yet to be revealed. And so, as we read last week in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Paul said, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then he said, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Or as he says in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, that we're to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So there is a wrath of God that we're still waiting for that is going to be revealed in unprecedented fashion. And in Revelation chapter 6, the apostle John uh, sees this and prophesies about it. He says in chapter 6, verse 12, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, listen to this, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? That is the wrath of God that is on its way. So Paul could have said, you know, the wrath of God will be revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But he tells us that the wrath of God is being revealed. And I'm parking on this because I think it's really what he's going to unfold now in the rest of chapter 1. Answering the question, how is the wrath of God revealed now? Where can we see the wrath of God in our world or in our lives. How is it being revealed? I, don't, I mean, there's some bad things happening, but no one's... It, it appears to me from Revelation chapter 6 that when the wrath of God hits this world, everybody's going to know it. They're going to know it's the great day of His wrath. It's arrived. But that's not happening right now. So what is Paul getting at here? Well, let me give you... a. This just this couple sentence synopsis of what I think or where I think you can see the wrath of God now being revealed from heaven. And then I'll spend the rest of the message unfolding that. The wrath of God we see revealed now is in this form. God giving over human beings to the sinful desires of their hearts. That is this, that their sinful lives and lifestyles and their ungodliness and unrighteousness is the wrath of God in that he has turned them over to what they want and what they want is not him. That's the righteous wrath and judgment of God being displayed right now. And I cannot help but read this passage and see what Paul is saying here and look around at the nation of which I am a citizen 
and say, this is exactly what we're seeing. That Romans chapter 1 comes alive in the context of the United States of America in a unique way. And let me show you how that unfolds. There are two key words or phrases that you should be familiar with if you're going to understand Romans chapter 1. The first word is the word exchanged. And that's what we did. And it shows up three times in this passage. In this passage, in verse 23, 25, and 26. So let's look at those. Look at verse 23. First he says in verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And what did they do? Exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's idolatry. They exchange over God, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, but they, they don't want the creator, they want the creation. As a matter of fact, verse 25 because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. There's this exchange. Human beings don't want God. They would rather have the stuff he made without him, you see. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and here he will begin unfolding about homosexuality and the sinfulness of it as an example of human beings exchanging over the natural relations that God has given them in nature very clearly and men and women and, and uh, uh, sexual relations and they don't want that, they exchange it over, you see, for their own desires and passions. So there's the exchange. In the end it says that humanity does not want God and by nature, friends, understand, he's talking about all of us. Remember, we're not sitting here with our arms folded, looking out at our horrible culture, saying, oh, wow, how bad they are. Paul's saying, that's all of us, including him. We are all God exchangers by nature. And therefore, second key phrase, since humanity did not want God, God turned humanity over in his wrathful judgment. He turns them over. Or the phrase here is, he gave them up. Verse 24, verse 26, and 28. Therefore, catch this, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. In other words, their sexual immorality is a sign for us that God in his righteous judgment and wrath has given them up to what they want, you see. In verse 25, um, or verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. In verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. So catch this, because humanity didn't want God and they're unrighteous and ungodly, it evokes God's righteous wrath and in his righteous wrath and judgment being revealed right now, he gives humanity over to what it wants and that is stuff in sin and not God. Now can't you just look around and see that? 
That is the evidence of God's wrath right now being revealed, giving people over to the sin and stuff they want that will result in the due penalty of their error for exchanging God over. Giving over to sin in all its consequences. All of its life-destroying and soul-crushing consequences. This is why you live in a culture right now where at an increasing rate, people are so messed up internally. Never been recorded a time in history where mental illness is so prevalent and prominent. Where such an incredibly disproportionate amount of people are having to find ways to suppress the depression and the anxiety, the franticness and the fear. Why is that happening? Because we become more enlightened about mental illness? Or could it be just a result of God's righteous judgment for people giving them over to what they want? And when human beings try to make sense of life in this world apart from God, their creator and their life giver, the one in whose image they are bearing and they try to live in this world, what is that going to create? It's the due consequences of the error of sin and the great exchange that we are all guilty of. Ephesians chapter 2 is very important. Let me give a connecting passage here, and I think I have that for us on the screen. Paul says this, you were dead, and he's writing to believers here, so remember this. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, catch this, and were by our very nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That statement is so incredibly important to, to see and understand and grasp. That you by your very nature are children of God's wrath. Because you by your very nature are a God rejecter, a sin embracer, an idolatrous person, sexually immoral. And you are filled with all manner of unrighteousness. That is you by your nature, you see. So therefore, Christians can never gloat. It's only as he goes on, I don't have it up there in Ephesians 2, but in verse 4, but God now, who is rich in mercy, man, he showered his grace on you and he made you alive in Christ and gave you a new heart and a new nature that does seek him and does want to honor him. It's all by grace you have been saved. Not of your own doing. It's all a result of the gift of God. But by nature, understand, friends, where Paul is building is we all, him included, are spiritually dead and enslaved to sin and the passions of our own flesh. We, by nature, have natures that evoke the wrath of the Almighty God, the righteous wrath. But that's not all we bear. Back in chapter 1, Paul is teaching us that inherent in every human being is a knowledge of God's existence that only amplifies the sinfulness of the rejection of Him. 
What I think Paul is teaching, we begin in verse 19, look at this, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse for although they knew God, catch that, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This very clearly teaches that all human beings have an inherent knowledge that there is a God. It's because God is not hiding from people. In creation, he has made himself or at least his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature very clearly seen so that humanity, Paul says, have clearly perceived it ever since the creation of the world. They know there's a God. There is no such thing then as a true atheist. What an atheist has to do to even be able to get to the point where they'd say they're an atheist is they have to take the truth about God and they have to suppress it in their own unrighteousness because just in their natural faculties, they can look around and see that all of this came from someone and this someone is powerful and amazing and worthy of honor and glory and thanksgiving. And so they have to take that truth they know and they have to suppress it in their own unrighteousness. You really don't have to convince somebody of the existence of God. I think that the reason they're arguing with you about the very existence of God is because they have to keep suppressing the truth they know about Him be true in their own unrighteousness. They don't want there to be a God to whom they're accountable. They don't want there to be a God to whom they will have to stand in judgment. And so they are, verse 20, without excuse. No one will be able to stand before God on judgment day and say that they didn't know enough about him to at least want to honor him, thank him, and seek after him. Now it's very important and Just the creation of the world, there's not enough revelation from God about God to be saved. For that, you need special revelation, the the Lord Jesus Christ himself and the word of God so that you can trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. But there's enough information to know that there is a God to whom you're accountable and that should spur on a human being to acknowledge him, to thank him, and to seek after him. But as Paul will put it in Chapter 3, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands. And friends, no one seeks for God. Not of their own nature. Not of their own inclination. Paul is making it clear they don't want God even though there are things they could know about God enough to worship Him and seek after Him and seek to know Him. And they, verse 21, though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. You know, I can't help again but bring up our own nation in this. We had a nation established by people. I know that not all of them were born again Christians. But all of them were Christianized and at least acknowledged 
the existence of the God of the Bible. That's a truism. They acknowledged God as God. They, they believed that we came from Him. They saw creation as the work of His hands. This is what our country is founded on. As a matter of fact, there were times in the history of our nation in which the public school system would teach children creationism. Where Bible would be read in it. Where the universities that were established here were established as Christian universities. Of course understood there was a God until the late 1800s in the introduction of Darwinianism. Which evolved, pun on words, into evolution itself. And the gospel that there is no God and that we all came from nothing and therefore you're not accountable to anybody and there's nothing really inherently different about human beings. You've evolved from a single-celled organism and eventually into apes and monkeys and now what you see as human beings. They claim to be wise in their science and yet they became fools You know what that word fools is in verse 22? I thought this was interesting. It's a Greek word, morano. (laughs) By which, of course, we get our English word moron. The Bible isn't politically correct and it's not really interested in preserving your feelings above all other things. It says to you, if you say there's no God, you're a moron. Our nation was began, our first president, listen to this, those of you who come here a lot and have been here for Thanksgiving know the Thanksgiving proclamation. Remember verse 21, though, although they knew God, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, right? Listen to this, George Washington put out a proclamation to the entire nation, setting aside, a ho- by, by the way, the recommendation of both houses of Congress, To set aside a day, listen to this. Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favor, and whereas both houses of Congress have by their joint committee requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God. Now, therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November next, to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, or that will be, that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care and protection of the people of this country. And we went from that to saying that schools can't talk about creation. As a matter of fact, it goes so far, they can't even mention intelligent design. Some will say, okay, let's just keep one particular God out of this. Can we at least teach intelligent design or at least lay that out as an option? 
Let's put it as an option among the others that there is an intelligent design to all we see and they say you cannot do that. Now, according to Romans 1, when people exchange the truth about God for a lie, what does God do? He gives them over. The very next thing he talks about here is that when they refuse to thank him or honor him as God because of creation, what happens next? They become idolaters. And they begin to worship stuff. My friends, have you, some of you are much, well, I shouldn't say it. Some of you are more older than I am. Have you ever seen a time in our culture where there is more of an obsession upon stuff, things, covetousness, the latest, the greatest, I want more, bigger, newer, give me more things. Give me more stuff and more places to stuff my stuff in. It's idolatry. It's because as John Calvin most famously said, Our hearts are idol factories. We were, after all, created by God to worship. To worship the Creator. And all of the good things He gives us are to be like reflections of Him so that as we're enjoying them, we're thanking Him and we're honoring Him. But instead, like the rest of mankind... We choose stuff. And look at the progression. Look at verse 24. And therefore, because we've become like this, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. The very next step, rejection of God and creation, obsession with stuff, covetousness and idolatry, and God gives them up to sexual immorality. And progressive sexual immorality. He gives them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they're idolaters. Verse 26, listen to this. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty there. Has we not seen that progression in our own nation? A nation of God acknowledgement, morality, simplicity, a rejection of God in the teachings of atheistic evolution, a headlong dive into covetousness and idolatry and stuffism, and then right into sexual immorality of all different kinds. To the point now where it's shocking what we're seeing. Men becoming women. Women becoming men. Exchanging the natural use of their bodies. We say, what is happening? That's the wrath of God being revealed. Right now before your eyes. We're seeing it. I've heard it said before. Somebody was asked, why why do you believe the Bible's true? And they said, the nation of Israel. I know what they're saying. 
because you watch the history of those people and you can see the evidence of the truthfulness of Scripture. But let me give you a second reason now, new people, the United States of America. It proves the Bible's true. You see, there's a statement in Scripture, it's rather scary, where God said, God is not mocked. And no other nation had been given such light about their beneficent creator. The one that they owed honor and thanks and obedience. And no other nation other than Israel do I know that has had such a wholesale rejection of him at every level in our society. God is not mocked. And we wonder, Christians wonder sometimes, they struggle with the wrath of God. I just wrestle with the wrath of God. You do? You think God is some cosmic Chris Rock that's going to let a human being walk up and smack him across the face and shrug it off with a joke? This is a God of holy, perfect holy, and righteous response to the actions of human beings. And when they reject him and live against him and spit in his face, the natural righteous response of our God is one of wrath and judgment. So he gives them over to what they want. We're seeing, friends, the Bible come alive. Now I recognize that in our nation we are a people of patriotism. It kind of comes with the territory of being an American. And I recognize that it is hard to see your nation itself as a whole now as being under the righteous judgment and wrath of God. And you see it progressing and progressing and progressing and the disaster that's coming. But friends, take heart in this. That the Apostle Paul is writing these things to a time and place and culture. They would have understood all of this the same way we're seeing it. They lived in first century Rome. Many Roman historians will tell you that the the demise of Rome came with, in part, moral degradation and immorality. But they saw it all. Did you know a large percentage of the emperors of Rome were homosexual? Matter of fact, Nero, who was... um, Right around this time of the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, Nero was such a sicko that he killed his wife. He kicked her to death while she was pregnant. And then he found a man who looked like her, married him, made the man live as a woman in every way, including the ultimate surgical transition. And that's how he lived his life. It is just a simple fact of history that homosexuality was very much accepted among the Roman culture, especially among its men. We're not living in anything new. It's just new to us. And Paul, when he saw those things in his society, didn't fold in on himself or, oh, what are we going to do about this? Or how are we going to reclaim Rome, you know, for what, what it once was and its greatness? Because he knew the power, friends, wasn't in any political identification. Because politics have no power to save. 
So the answer, I don't think, for the church is first and foremost, getting a certain elected official in there or doing something particularly as citizens, though that can play a role. The answer is the good news of Jesus Christ, which is, as Paul says, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the answer is in the gospel. And in it, the righteousness is revealed and proclaiming the righteousness offered to unrighteous people if they would repent and trust in Christ. The answer is the gospel that had saved Paul and the people to whom he's writing. Friends, this isn't time to fold in. It's the time to buckle down now with the gospel. We're given the opportunity to live in a day and an age when we see the wrath of God unfolding against our nation. And always, even throughout the prophets, you see when the wrath of God is being unfolded, so is the mercy of God. So is salvation. So is the offer of the gospel. We keep preaching and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and God will save his people from their sins through that proclamation. This is not the kingdom. Praise God for that. The kingdom is on its way and in the meantime, God is gathering the residents of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and that happens through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. So, as Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 15 so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we, with humble hearts and with sober hearts and yet joyful hearts, praise you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are the people who have experienced the power, the saving power of it in our own lives and the joy of your righteousness. And you have chosen to put us in a time in which we live in a culture that is demoralizing and degrading all as a result of your, your righteous, wrathful judgment. And what a privilege that is. Help us to Be eager now to share the gospel, to feel the obligation to do so and to preach it and share it with boldness. And God, we just pray that through our witness, you would save people and that would increase in glory to you and thanksgiving to you. We ask this in the name of your son. Amen.